You're listening to an exclusive podcast from the International Workshop on Acute Leukemias, IWALT 2019, brought to you by Vijay Hemonk, an open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. This podcast looks at the future therapeutic landscape of acute leukemias, both myeloid and lymphoblastic. Joining in the debate is Mark Levis from Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center in the USA, Andrew Way from Monash University in Australia, and Alan Burnett from Cardiff University in the UK. My name is Alan Burnett. We've been attending the second international workshop on acute leukemias in Barcelona. Um, this is the second workshop. The aim of the workshops is really to assess where we've got to in these diseases and particularly where we go forward. The interesting thing, I think, is that in the last 18 months or two years, there have been a number of new drugs in acute myeloid leukemia, for example, uh, which have been approved. Uh, some, most indeed, not on randomized uh, information with survival endpoints. So to discuss how the meeting's gone, what highlights have uh, fallen out of it, we have Andrew Wee from Melbourne and Mark Levis from Baltimore, who are going to give us their perspectives on, on, on this couple of days. So Andrew, what's, uh, what do you feel the challenges are that uh, have clarified themselves at this meeting? I think in terms of acute myeloid leukemia, the major challenge I think still remains uh, how to get immune therapies to, to work better. Uh, we've tried many different types of technologies in terms of um, bites and uh, conjugated uh, monoclonals and uh, also CAR T cells and compared to ALL where really immunotherapy is really dominating the field and transforming the lives of uh, patients with that disease tremendously we're just not seeing that type of progress uh, in AML. So at the moment, we seem to still have to rely upon transplantation, uh, risk stratification, and some new molecules which are helping us to, to help patients, but uh, we still have a long way to go in this disease. Yeah, I mean, given your contribution to the field, particularly with venetoclax, I'm surprised you haven't raised that as the great white hope of uh, the future. So what do you think of some of the small molecules? What are the cha challenges there are? Or targeted agents, shall we say? I think uh, they all have a contribution and uh, we have in particular venetoclax, as you've mentioned, targeting BCL2, FLT3 inhibitors, which uh, marks have major uh, input into, and also IDH inhibitors. Now it's a matter of how do we perhaps use these drugs either in sequence or in combination to uh, try and combat the clonal diversity of, of AML and I guess keep up with a disease which keeps adapting to the selective pressure uh, we place against it. Mark, the, I referred to perhaps the less rigorous criteria for drug approval that seems to be around in the last two years, which is fine. I think they must have waited till I retired and then done it. Have you got any comments on that process? I mean, it is a, it is a bit of a change the way, the way the treatments have been assessed in the last little while. Yeah. We had to stick to overall survival as the endpoint. We tried to persuade them disease-free survival would be a better endpoint. It really wasn't accepted. Well, it, it has been now to the point where the last word I heard literally from an FDA on uh, another drug I was involved with was 
Oh, well, you can't use overall survival as an endpoint. There's too many confounding factors. You should use event-free survival, <laughs> which I found kind of ironic. But yeah, there's no question uh, drugs are being seemingly waved through, but uh, the approvals are logical. I'm not so sure that uh, it's necessarily the FDA that has gotten lighter. It's uh, as Charlie Schiffer always used to say, you needed better drugs, and the drugs have clearly gotten better. Uh, and I think that's kind of what I've noticed. So. so in your particular field where you've led the understanding of the implications of FLT3 and its treatment, um, you did make some uh, very good summaries of the merits of the of the candidates at the moment to follow on from the Mydostoran experience. So that presents a few difficulties. One, I guess, if you're trying to bring it first line, you've got to use standard of care, which includes Mydostoran. But in terms of the benefits or strengths or weaknesses of the other agents, would you care to comment? Uh, well, as I um, discussed, I guess, um, uh, the, they all three, I mean, uh, have strengths and weaknesses, but yes, with the newer agents, they are chemically distinct. And, uh, you know, I've heard tell, well, we've got one, why do we need a second one? And, and I just roll my eyes and say, have you treated CML recently? I use all five of the drugs approved for that thing, and I'm glad that I've got them. So they are, uh, you know, I, 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 and frankly, I'll take more, I'll take all I can get. Uh, but. They are very different. I think I'm excited by the fact that I think we're going to have high quality trials to tell us how to use these drugs, which ones to use when, um, and they, they do make sense. So yes, I think, you know, quizartinib might work best early on, and I think geltritinib might work, work best later on, uh, and, but there's a few more coming down the road. Uh, we'll see. I think the key actually is we've probably got FLT3 inhibited. We're going to have to do more. We're going to have to start combining things. You know, we didn't cure AML with donoribicin. We cured it with donoribicin. You know, started on the road with Donna plus ERA, and then the principle will hold the same, I think, uh, with these targeted agents. And if you, you know, you've got, how do you, do you think there are pharmacological implications in terms of how good these drugs are? I mean, there was this story of interaction with other drugs or azole antifungals, for example, uh, sustaining the inhibitory activity or not, uh, et cetera, et cetera, the ligand implications, et cetera. How do you see that now? We will still have to be, at the end, we are pharmacists. We are pharmacologists. We use drugs to cure our patients. We don't, you know, we don't pull out a scalpel. And so I think it is imperative that you need to know drug interactions, just the mere thought that, uh, okay, I'm opening up the blood-brain barrier with these crazy T-cell-mediated therapies in ALL, and now I better not be giving the patient imipenem, which, in fact, I think I've done before. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, okay, and, and that, so there, there's a unique pharmacologic feature. I use uh, the trick of an azole to boost up giltritinib to get a higher level into the central nervous system. Uh, which, in fact, it can do. On the other hand, when I combined anacidinib and gilteritinib with an azole, I got 
LF liver function problems promptly. Uh, um, the, the drug interactions are all over the place, and you'd better know about them. So the trend, it seems to me very clearly from the week, is that nobody is... Uh, Nobody has got a lot of confidence in just sticking now with monotherapy of the new agents. It's all about combinations. And, you know, how, how does a, a trialist work out the best bet for combinations? Is it just how well he gets on with the company involved? Or are there any logical combinations that you would vote for? I think um, when we use the single agent drugs, uh, Serial monitoring for resistance mechanisms is really important because that can be quite helpful in informing us what might be a, a rational combination approach to go with. Uh, and then really we, we try and back that up with, with preclinical uh, work, but ultimately the, the trial is the trial. Uh, then there are candidate drugs which, uh, you know, we come through the system that might be useful for specific subsets of disease. and. Another issue with all of these new drugs is that uh, when these drugs get approved and start moving into the first line setting, uh, all of the years that we've spent risk stratifying AML go out the window and we have to pretty much do it all again. And uh, also there becomes diversity between risk stratification for countries that have access to these drugs and countries which uh, are behind and take time to get access and so really it's become a much more complex world in terms of uh, drug availability, drug options and even drug monitoring. There are, you know, the Europeans are very strong with uh, MRD and uh, multi-parameter uh, gene panels whereas many other parts in the world are still very much evolving in this area. I think Torsten's point about using artificial and you know, machine learning is going to be necessary, to be perfectly honest. Our brains aren't going to be able to discern the patterns. But a treatment response to one of these agents that is noted, such as example when uh, Ven was given to an IDH mutant patient, okay, that was noted, it was a simple finding. And then Ravi Majetti ran off and explained the biology of that afterwards. So if some uh, uh, artificial intelligence approach can discern patterns that will then be carried back into the lab to explain the biology. We really may move the field, you know, uh, ahead in leaps and bounds when we're doing. Yeah, I mean, we've been poor at explaining why treatment actually works in some patients. We've been quite good at saying why it doesn't work, but clearly there are drugs out there that don't work well enough in enough patients, and that's the reason they fail, but there's still a lot of patients. Even if you look at the gemtuzumab ozogomycin intermediate risk overall, it's not that big an effect. It is significant, but not by much. But if you, you can very quickly identify a population just based on you know, white count, cytogen, you know, you can very quickly get down to a subset where you can show clear benefit. Um, but what I think you're implying, Mark, is that Torsten will, able, will be able to talk about your drug handling biochemistry or enzymology as well as your disease issues as well. So, uh, and then of course, Japanese patients have different biology in handling the drugs, so they have to have a different approval system, I think. So let's go on to this issue of MRD, which you mentioned, Andrew. It's got attractions, uh, I think, because it tells you about individual patients. Um, 
Now, there are two approaches, the NGS or flow. Uh, they both have challenges. Um, what do you think the strengths and weaknesses of, of either technique is? The flow cytometry is uh, more easy to, uh, I guess, set up in laboratories, especially without access to um, high-tech molecular services, and it's a kind of a generic morphologic type approach to assessing uh, the presence of blasts. However, I think it doesn't give us the granular information that I think I find useful when using gene-specific uh, probes, uh, particularly like MPM1, because the level of confidence and the sensitivity of the technique is extremely high and very reproducible and can, is something which could be standardised between different laboratories, whereas we've continued to struggle um, having flow cytometry used as a general purpose MRD marker and it tends to be restricted to centres of excellence. Yeah, I think also, you know, you've got, even in the MRD negative, you've still got a fair number of relapses going on and maybe you just missed a sample that's relapsing. Uh, but in addition, in an MRD positive, they're not all failing either, so it's uh, not clear why that's happening. But uh, it certainly opens up the challenge of assessing treatments prospectively in the context of whether a patient was positive or negative at a certain time. Uh, what's the flow experience in the, in the US, Mark? My impression is they're going more towards NGS than flow generally speaking. I think that's clearly going to be the case. Uh, we're busy running around talking about digital droplet PCR to identify specific mutations and cell-free DNA and so forth. The flow, we're quite comfortable with it for ALL, but not for AML. Uh, again, I, I, I'm afraid the, the concept of the brilliant artist uh, localized at one or two institutions remains a problem and so widespread use is going to have to come through usually nucleic acid. Yeah I think there is a observer experience involved in flow that's much more obvious in AML context than in AL context. What about clonal haemopoiesis backgrounds though as far as NGS is concerned? How big an issue and how can you deal with that? Oh, it's huge. We're the, now that we're actually, without realizing it, doing these big panels on random people, we're finding all manner of things. And, and one issue that wasn't talked about here was familial uh, AML. It's a lot more common than we realize. Um, you know, yes, I've got a family history of cancer, not so much. I've got an aunt and a brother. Okay, you've got a mutation in ATM. You've got a mutation in DDX41. That's actually your problem, and uh, that is much more common than we realize. So we're finding, uh, um, you know, just uh, the the, and, and this speaks to how well we've under, we've advanced in our understanding of how the disease comes about. You know, this this slow process over the years. Oh no, it starts at age 70. No, 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 it starts at age, no, 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 it starts at age 50. Oh, I, you know, it pretty much starts at birth. It starts when your stem cells start dividing. The longer you're on the planet, the more chance you have to make a mistake. So going back to new drugs, you've got IDH1, IDH2 inhibitors, 10 to 12% of younger patients, half of whom with conventional therapy don't appear to relapse. 
So it's a major challenge to show their impact. So my impression is there's a fair body of opinion that wants to jump to combos with them or combine them with standard chemo, that's fine. We may find an answer in five or six years as to whether that's a good idea, if we're lucky. Uh, it seems to me, Mark, about the uh, new FLT3 inhibitors in the next year is going to present some approvals, maybe a couple of approvals. Sure, uh, probably in a, a couple of approvals, or a, you know, at least one more approval, but then we're not going to really know how to use, but we'll, we're already positioned. The trials are already rapidly accruing that will tell us how to use the darn things. We won't get a readout on those for two or three years, but we're going to get that. It's coming fairly quickly. Okay, but you're going to end up, if you add quizartinib to your chemo, it's beneficial, tick. But there is a standard of care currently out there. Does your control arm have to be mitostorant, do you think? In well, but that trial is going to be accruing quickly also. I mean, you know, we're not going to get a readout on quantum first for, you know, probably still a couple of years. You watch. Uh, the Europeans are going to put their, get, uh, get the machine going, and you've got this gilteritinib versus mitostorin trial roaring, roaring ahead. It'll, I have no doubt it will accrue reasonably quickly. And they'll use event-free survival as an endpoint. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get that readout reasonably fast. I think we'll look at survival. Everybody looked at the ratify survival curves and said, some people said, meh. Uh, but uh, if you see a much more pronounced hazard ratio or difference uh, with quizartner versus placebo, there's a biologic rationale then. Uh, the, the method we use to measure um, the presence of FLT3 ITD is obviously not very sensitive, but you've um, done some workshops and so, and, and more sensitive methods. And that actually is key, getting back to MRD, getting back to a nucleic acid form of MRD. That's a component of that. If you can basically say, look how deep the remission is, at least for the marker that we're targeting, using this PCR NGS sandwich assay that multiple groups are developing. It's not hard technology. You can really track this thing deep and if your treatment makes it go deep, uh, that's very reassuring. It, it, it explains a lot of what we see. So in other words, the more data, the more light that's shined on the results of that trial will make, it, make people perfectly comfortable to switch their so-called standard of care. Presumably there must be more patients positive than we realize if you had a more sensitive technique and with the lack of correlation between the level and the potential benefit of these three inhibitors, maybe we're missing some patients that might benefit from well, the Well, there, there, there is an association with the level and survival. We kind of showed mm -hmm. that. Just mm -hmm. a, a sheer measurement will, will make curves separate with this assay. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an endpoint on all those phase three studies, that assay done by different institutions, different, uh, slightly different methodology, but essentially in principle the same assay, is a hard endpoint on those. And so that will, will get that readout. My impression is that FLT3 by NGS has become, is tricky because of the, the size yeah. issues. Is that being resolved? Yeah, that's resolved. What you do is you put PCR primers flanking their area of interest amplify it up just a wee bit, uh, oh, enough to make it out-compete the non-FLT3 DNA, and then chop that up, put that on an Illumina panel, and you can get 
you know, a, a very sensitive uh, allelic burden down to, you know, one in 10,000, one in 100,000 routinely. And it turns out, not surprisingly, it's right there at one in, one in 10,000 in most mm -hmm. patients, right after remi the remission, a good clean remission. No, it's right there, of course it is. And so, you know, making that go negative uh, will be... Vixios. Liposomal donorubicinaria. Interesting, because the phase two studies only showed a benefit in the adversarious patients. Hence, its evolution as an adverse kind of targeted thing. Difficult to understand with, in the context even of the experience of donorubicin intensification, why uh, Vixius wouldn't actually have done something in the intermediate or more favorable patients, but it didn't. Uh, and I don't think anyone really understood why not. But um, clearly, when it came to Europe, there was no experience of using it in Europe. Uh, when it came to Europe, the kind of doubts were expressed, well, you're only up against seven plus three. So it's clearly going to face some quite difficult challenges, I think, as it moves into different situations. Um, but it's the technology behind it that I think we're, anyone who's done lab experiments and looked at synergies and re, or ratios, etc., of different agents and combination knows that different ratios produce better results and it goes up and down and they publish the best uh, ratio available. So there may well be other combinations out there if, if the principle of putting in a fixed ratio really is what's making the difference. But of course, there is uh, the liposome itself is not a random thing. I mean, it is engineered it's to accumulate engineered in, thing, yes, in the is. So it, this is not a chance, yeah. a wee lump of uh, fat to stick <laughs> drugs in. This has been carefully thought through. But it would be interesting to see whether this could be applied to other sure. combos um, and whether it would make them more efficient. And I'm just wondering, uh, if, you know, like your Venita Clax IDH1 or 2 or something, putting a liposome could have a future. I mean, is that a crazy idea? I think it sort of is because uh, um, the main problem that the liposome gets around is it do keeps the donorubicin from your skin and gut and things like that and keeps it in the blood. Uh, I don't know that that's, we see any toxicity from a one of an agent like venetoclax except to the bone marrow. So, um, and that's where the liposome gets to. Just tell us the story, the myeloma story on venetoclax, if you, if you know it, because it's obviously been put on hold uh, in that context. So why is that different? Uh, you're referring to the uh, the study which uh, combined bortezomib with um, yes. dexamethasone and the study was halted because of an increased number of deaths in the venetoclax containing arm. Uh, the full picture as to what was going on is not available, however, uh, I think the suggestion is that there was an increased uh, number of septic events and presumably that led to increased numbers of deaths. So the question is, why was the venetoclax containing arm more toxic with respect to uh, sepsis. One, one hypothesis I have is that uh, venetoclax is a PGP inhibitor and that perhaps in combination with some drugs, I'm not sure if bortezomib is a substrate, but it could uh, 
inadvertently increase the concentration um, of uh, the drug in the not just the normal cells but the, the malignant cells and normal progenitors actually have very high levels of PGP so in fact the normal progenitors might suffer more and hence lead to the myelosuppression and this could also be an issue with uh, venetoclax being combined with other cytotoxic combinations uh, particularly if they're PGP uh, pump substrates. Now I, I was quite reassured to see that most people are feeling that these drugs, these new drugs, which have very, you know, they have very interesting mechanisms, etc., are moving more front line. But as they move front more front line, the practical challenges of delivering these studies increases, in my view. So you were talking, Andrew, about a sort of master protocol, which I think is more recognised by regulatory authorities as a reasonable thing to do. Um, would you like to just summarise what you're talking about? Yeah, so at the moment we have more uh, partitions and, and segmentation of, of AML, which means doing subgroup studies now becomes more challenging. And uh, Bob Lowenberg discussed uh, the Hovon approach where they're getting together many countries to do a, an IDH uh, randomised study and this will require 7,000 patients to be um, uh, screened to find the appropriate number of patients to get an adequately powered uh, event-free survival endpoint. Uh, for us folk in Australia where we don't have uh, 7,000 people, 7, people <laughs> with AML, um, we have to come up with more, I guess, innovative approaches to do trials where we can get useful information and uh, the thing that's always uh, puzzled me is that to do all these different combinations uh, you have to literally open six, seven, eight, nine separate trials which drives our governance office and our coordinators uh, spare. So every patient uh, relapses ultimately um, if they're not cured obviously and uh, they'll have a different clone that might be targetable and uh, the point of the master protocol is to find some way where we can uh, unify different uh, drug combinations into a package whereby we can recycle the patient onto new um, combinations when they fail combination A, move them onto combination B rather than a new study and to provide pharma with a way of uh, integrating uh, their new drugs more seamlessly uh, into a master protocol similar to how you ran the uh, pick a winner type of study. So I mean they could be in C, they could be in D, they could be in E. So the patients that hit randomization E could vary quite a lot in terms of what they've been through and you know whether or not their disease evolved. How do you that's, sort of control for yeah, that? That's no different to how we do relapse refractory studies anyway. Yeah. There's people that have um, you know one to 15 prior therapies but I think the most informative um, information is uh, what was the target, what happened to the target and doing something to that target have a patient benefit in terms of prolongation of uh, remission and if the patient didn't have a benefit what other things were going on at a mutation or non-mutational level that might have been causing resistance and I think we can gain lots of information from looking at individuals not necessarily controlled because of um, prior uh, clinical or other factors because what we're looking here is purely the drug versus the target and each patient has uh, often five or six different mutations and so each patient actually gives us five 
pieces of information, and if we can recycle that patient onto multiple drugs, then we can get much more data than we can from just putting one patient onto one trial, looking for one survival endpoint, and then again trying to find another 7,000 patients to do it all over again. Yeah, this is similar, not the same as, but similar to the BEAT approach, where they look at the molecular signature. Try to classify every patient, and uh, try literally and not just molecular signature, but even um, maybe even in vitro assays. Yeah. Too. Now I've not heard too much about that program in terms of how it's expanding or getting uh, on or yeah, well, I think all they can say Because it's not, ran not these, these interventions no, 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 no. are not randomized. Are yours randomized? Yeah. No, not randomized. Uh -huh. because so they're exploratory. Exploratory, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. I think that's what this is too, and I think that to some degree there was a sense, it, part of it is limited by what drugs are available. Yeah. Uh, and so, well, it could be this, well, it could be that, it could be this, what drug do we have, that one? Well, that's what they get. So, you know, it, it may be limited by that in a lot of ways, but if they get enough drugs, even then, uh, the lack of randomization, the uncertainty of, you know, it's, it's really a big pilot trial um, more than anything. Yeah. And, and my one concern with BDAML, I'll be honest, is uh, they don't quite pay attention to the pharmacology. The drug in the dish is not the same as the drug in the patient and the drug interactions that you're talking about. And that's, that is, the, the lack of control over that uh, concerns me that there'll be uh, more noise than signal. So just reflecting on the meeting as a whole, um, how did you kind of, were there, advantages, disadvantages in the meeting in terms of the general format. Uh, speakers were invited to talk for short periods of time with long discussion periods. There was quite a lot of intermingling out off the formal part of the meeting. Did you think this worked as a meeting? Did you find it beneficial? To me it was, I could honestly say it's probably one of the most enjoyable meetings I've had um, in the last 12 months, mainly because it wasn't as um, packed and rushed as many other meetings. And I think the, uh, the short time format forced us to uh, be more um, you know, diligent about choosing what was relevant and what was provocative. Um, and then having very relaxed discussion amongst a smaller group of people uh, is really a format that is almost a bit of a dying breed of meeting at the moment. So I, I really enjoyed it and got a lot of good interactions with um, pharma. I think the pharma people had very good access to, you know, KOIs here and um, we had good access to them and good access to catching up with um, good colleagues. Yeah, I think the, the whole concept of uh, get up and say a few quick words and then start the, the, uh, argument. the argument <laughs> uh, is more fun. I, in fact, I would expand more on that. I would, uh, you know, have a gong. Okay, you've, you have 10 minutes, talk fast, because we really want to start arguing. That's the I think the other, th <laughs> the, the other thing is that, you know, you've got quite a number of disciplines, preclinical and clinical yeah. involved, uh, which is interesting. And also, I think the age of the KOLs or the speakers has dropped from previous meetings that I yes. go Some to. Some of them are fresh out of high school. <laughs> looks like. <laughs> so you look forward to the next year meeting. Okay. Yeah. We hope you found this podcast stimulating. Follow us on Twitter at VJ and join in on the conversation. 
Visit vjhemong.com for the latest updates from international meetings like EHA and ASH. Be sure to subscribe to the VJ Hemong podcast on Spotify and Apple and join us for the next one.